All right, so here's how we're going to begin today. I want you to think in your mind of your favorite Bible story. Specifically, Old Testament. Uh, there are some good stories in the New Testament. I want you to think Old Testament. Your favorite Bible story. And then I want you to turn to somebody around you and tell them what it is. All right? So think of your favorite Bible story and then tell somebody around you what it is. Go. All right, somebody tell me. What did somebody tell you? What was their favorite Bible story? Jonah, all right? Jonah and the whale, all right? Somebody else? Esther, all right? Samson, uh, heard that over there. Tori, got your hand raised. So, David and Goliath, they'll be happy next week, all right? We're going to talk about David and Goliath next week. Now, anybody else have one of the favorite story from the Old Testament? Elijah and the bear and the kid, spoken like a youth minister where some youths are making fun of a guy's bald head and Elijah, they call down bears upon the youths to destroy them all. It's in there, right? You, you don't know the reference right off your head. It's First Kings, I think. All right, so go, you know, some of y'all didn't know that was in there, right? There. Go on up, you bald head, is what the kids are yelling. He calls out some bears that devour them. All right, we got we got a hand raised in the very back. Looks like my son. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There you go. That's a good. That's a strong one, don't you think? Right there. Whoever's his dad probably told him that one pretty good. So, what makes a good story? What makes a story amazing? There, there are certain elements that are kind of there. Help me out. Tell me what. What do you want in an amazing story? The impossible made possible, all right? Which means there's got to be some kind of um, uh, danger or you got to feel some uneasiness, but not just kind of a little bit. There's got to, amazing stories have a real dramatic tension, right? How many of you watched the game yesterday? Good little game, all right? As much as we as Goodlitzville fans did not like that sixth inning, right? It made it a much more interesting story, right? We can say that today because they won, right? So I guess part of what makes a good story is a happy ending as well. But there has to be some tension, right? Uh, I, I uh, Some of you know I'm a St. Louis Cardinal baseball fan and they... They won last year's World Series, and they had a game kind of like that, a little different, that went well into the night, extra innings, looked like they were going to lose about three times, and Goodlesville was never really looked like they were going to lose. It got a little hairy in the tide, but it made it a much more interesting story. We're going to talk over the next three weeks about three amazing stories from the Old Testament. Now, the truth is, we could cover amazing stories from the Old Testament and we could cover them for months because they're unique and interesting and amazing. In fact, I saw a headline this week, and this is online from Entertainment Weekly, EW.com, and it's the Bible is suddenly the hottest thing in Hollywood. I don't know if you know this or not. We're going to talk about Noah today, but Darren Aronofsky, it's easy for me to say, right? who is a, an award-winning director, his next film is Noah. Anybody know who's playing Noah in that film? Russell Crowe is playing Noah in that film, all right? So it's a big-time star. And from what we know, what we know, he's trying to be pretty accurate about it. 
There are, um, Steven Spielberg is in discussions to produce and direct a story about Moses. Uh, Will Smith is in production talks about one about Cain and Abel. Uh, There are in the pipeline several other stories. And so the part of the reason is because, first of all, because there's nothing new under the sun and Hollywood's running out of ideas, so let's go back to ancient stories. But part of it is if they're just so rich, right? Today we're going to talk about an amazing story coming out of Genesis chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, most of what we'll talk about today will be up on the screen. And it's a story of a man named Noah. Now, when I say Noah, what do you think of immediately? The ark? Somebody said something else. Uh, what was that? Rain, right? Flood. What was in the ark? Animals, right? And it's become this cute little story, right? Of Noah and the ark and animals. In fact, you can go into nurseries and there's a little picture of a little boat and a giraffe's head sticking out, you know, and a lion and a bear hugging on the deck and Noah standing right in the midst of them all, right? It's become a cute little story. Noah and the flood is not a children's story. Noah's in the ark with all the animals, right? So basically a floating zoo. Anybody been to a zoo? You know, they're nice to look at the animals. Anybody been to the zoo on a really hot day? Yeah. What do you notice about the zoo on a really hot day? It stinks, right? All right. Because what you have to realize, they're on an ark. You may know how long they were on the ark approximately. They were at least 40 days and 40 nights, plus about 10 and a half months. So about a year. I'm not, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know what animals do. Right? They eat and they poop, right? And they're on there for a year, all right? So first of all, it's not just kind of not, you know, I don't imagine everybody just kind of hugging it out on the boat with the animals, all right? Secondly, they're in the boat. What's going on outside of the boat? Raining, flooding, 40 days and 40 nights, right? What's under the water? Earth? People, animals, how do people do underwater for 40 days? They don't, right? You ever thought about it this way? And this may offend some of you, but I'm uh, sorry, but that's kind of how the Bible is sometimes. You read it like it is, not like we sanitize it to be. Do you realize that in nurseries that have Noah's Ark symbols everywhere, they're symbolizing the largest recorded destruction of human life in history right how many people survived the flood eight how many people didn't everybody else i don't believe we do that in sunday school right hey kids let's all gather around and talk about a thing where everybody but eight people died that's like a bad hollywood movie right that's like the meteor hits. There are eight people left. So why in the world would God want this story so prominently 
in Scripture. And not just in the Old Testament where it's there, well, he just put it in, it's only three chapters of the Bible. Jesus references it. Peter references it. The writer of Hebrews references Noah. Why would he want it there? All right, let's look at it. We're going to cover three chapters of the Bible today, all right? I know there's a game at 2 o'clock. We'll be out by then, all right? Here it is in chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And if you've got your Bibles, look there. It's up here on the screen. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme in his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Now here's what we knew from that very passage, from that verse. It was bad. Like, really bad. Like the worst it had ever been bad. It says that all people thought about was evil. Every waking minute they thought about evil. Every time they were asleep, they were dreaming about evil. When they were with their families, evil. When they were working, evil. Every thought that came into their mind was something that was against God. Now, if you want to know how bad it got, the first four verses of Genesis, which we're not going to read because I don't want to answer questions for 20 minutes about the first four verses of Genesis, tell you how bad it got. It says that sons of God and daughters of men were intermarrying, having relationships, and they were producing giants. You just worry about that later, all right? The, The point is not to figure out what all that means. The point is, it was bad. In fact, it was so bad. Look at this next phrase. It says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now, here's what that that verse means. Because when you see that, it doesn't mean like when you do something and you say, I wish I would have never done it that way. God wasn't surprised that man got like this. What it means is that's a kind of a, it can be taken as an accounting term where he looks at the scope of what's happening and he sees the balance sheet and he says, man, Things have gotten way out of hand here. It's time to take corrective action. It's not that he regretted like, oh, I wish, as if, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's, it's now time to take action because we've gone too far down this track. All right? And it says there, he was grieved in his heart. That's an interesting description of God. Because the thing that the Old Testament and New Testament combined describe God as is a man's, he's a personal God to man. And he's emotional. Not capriciously so, not vindictively so, but he's emotional. What it describes there that he regretted that he had made man and he was grieved in his heart, it's a description of someone who is upset and heartbroken. Have you parents ever had your children's take a- children take action and you're both mad and heartbroken? They make a bad decision, they make a bad choice, they do something wrong and you're mad about it. I can't believe you did that. But there's also that within you is... That's the way it describes God. I, I remember when I was growing up, um, we had a neighborhood where we, we just played afternoons. You know, we'd just leave the house in the morning and be gone all day. And uh, There was one particular day where some friends and I decided to go play in the woods around our house, and we had not returned on time. And uh, Mom and Dad didn't know where we were. And I remember after coming home, finally getting there, Mom and Dad finding me, 
And I remember my dad and the expression on his face that I hadn't seen before. And it was that sheer anger. There were tears flowing and this unbelievable relief. And he like grabbed me and hugged me and then kind of pushed me away and said, that doesn't mean you're not in trouble. He was mad as everything. He was heartbroken of what I'd done. And that's why we get a picture of God here. The Lord says, I'm going to wipe out the earth. From the face of the earth, I'm going to wipe out mankind. Now, who's the problem? Let me ask you that. Who's the problem? Who's causing all these problems? Yeah, mankind, right? So who's going to suffer for mankind's faults? Everything. I'll wipe out from the face of the earth mankind who I've created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then you have tucked in there in verse 8. What you see consistently throughout Scripture. You see God's judgment on sin and man and evil, but you always see God with the hope for redemption. And tucked away at the end of that verse, in verse 8, it says, Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. Now here's what it means there. It's not real clear about how. Now it'll tell us a little bit later about the fact that, that Noah was blameless, that he was living for the Lord, that he was righteous. It even uses a phrase of Noah that is only used of one other person in Scripture, which is that he walked with God. What we understand is God didn't necessarily choose him just because he was good and he was the only one that was ever perfect or anything because we know Scripture teaches us he wasn't perfect. God chose him to be the one through which rebirth would come. The reboot. The renewal. So then God says to Noah, I need you to go build a boat. Now, how big was the boat? It was big, right? One and a half football fields long, 75 feet wide, 40 to 50 feet tall. Imagine LP field, one and a half times that, longer, I mean, wider and taller. This is what I love about this story. God gives him all these instructions, right? Build it this big, this wide, go get gopher wood. Nobody really knows what gopher wood is, all right? Um, People think maybe cypress trees. We don't really know. Go get this, get that, put it all together. And then you have this verse in chapter, uh, that goes on in chapter 6 that I love. It's a verse that will become synonymous with Noah throughout. And this is in 622, and it simply says, And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. What's amazing to me is that we don't have any evidence that Noah asked any questions or doubted in any way or determined in any way to question what God was doing. Can you imagine if I stood up here today and said, the Lord has called us as a church to build a boat one and a half times the size of LP Field? You think I get any questions? You may want to be at that business meeting, because I don't, right? And no one never asks a question. He just says, okay, and he just does it. In fact, 
over in Hebrews, and we'll talk about this at the end of the sermon as well, in Hebrews when it talks about Noah, it says Noah obeyed by faith even when he was told to do something because something was coming he had not seen. The idea is God, let me put it this way, there would have been very few things more ridiculous for God to ask Noah than to build a boat in that day from human terms. There wasn't any evidence at all they needed a boat. And God says build it. How many of y'all have seen Evan Almighty? Anybody seen that? All right. Now it takes a little liberty sometimes with the story, but it's kind of a modern retelling of that. And you know how it just looks crazy when you just watch me. You're just like, I mean, you know it's about kind of Noah, but you're like, yeah, this guy's crazy. He looks crazy, you know. And we don't have any evidence from Scripture of, of people uh, mocking him. I mean, that's kind of been thought through the years, but no evidence. All we have evidence of, we don't have evidence that he wouldn't talk to anybody. We don't have evidence that he talked to his wife. We don't have evidence that he talked to his kids. We don't have evidence that he talked to anybody in town. All we have evidence of is God said something and Noah did it. So he gets to work. And in chapter 7, after he's worked, and we don't know how many years it took, it took a long time. After he's worked all these years, God comes to Noah and says, Get in the ark. All your household, it's time to go. And I love, and this isn't going to be on the screen, but in chapter 7, verse 5, I love this because it's there again. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. I want you to imagine this picture for a moment. Noah spent all this time taking the boards, putting them together, building this ark, this huge mammoth thing. Nobody around would have seen anything like it. God comes to him and says, it's time. Now, we get this picture from the New Testament and some other writings that Noah spent some time preaching. In fact, there are many people that think that Noah was around preaching to people about the coming judgment and they need to get on board, they need to get on what God was doing. And Noah is proclaiming that. And I can imagine him as he gets on the boat and they're getting ready to pull up the door. I just imagine them pulling up the door, all right? And they're getting ready to do that. And Noah is standing there and he's looking out over this land realizing that it will never Look the same again. And he is saying goodbye to everything and everyone he has ever known. And he thinks about the conversation he had with the guy that lived not too far from him. And the time he shared what was going on with the other person and they just didn't respond. I can speculate and imagine that it was almost like in the New Testament when Jesus stands and looks over Jerusalem and weeps because he said, I would have gathered you in and yet you've rejected me. In the New Testament when Jesus talks about Noah, he compares the days of his coming again to the days right before the flood. And says in those days, people will be milling around, doing what they normally do, going to the grocery store, eating at restaurants, going to church, having jobs. They'll be doing what they normally do. They'll be doing everything like they've always done it. And then everything will change. You just wonder. For those of us that believers, I believe that when God ends this world, obviously we are going to be saved. 
But who is it in your life? This is a little bit of a side from where we're going. But who is it in your life, if you're standing on the edge of that ark, getting ready for the door to shut and the chance for repentance to be gone, who it is in your life that you would be weeping over? It tells us in Genesis chapter 7 that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, by the way, anybody here, let me ask this, how many of you here are under 600 years old? Good, all right. So here's what I'll tell you, all right? Unless you're over 600, you can't say God will never work again in my life. All right? So until you get to be 600, and then you can say, well, he didn't work with Noah until after that, all right? But until then, you're never too old for God to work. On the 17th day of the month, on that day, and this is what I love, is a lot of people just think that it was a flood because of the rain, but all the sources of the watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then just in case we missed the part that I talked about, about all the human life, it goes on towards the end of Genesis and says, that after it continued for 40 days, every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, the birds, the livestock, the wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth as well as all mankind, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. And in case we missed that, he wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to the birds of the sky. And they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. Here's an interesting little part of that. There's a phrase in there that says, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. You remember in Genesis 1 and 2 when he's creating man, he's creating Adam. How does he put life into Adam? He breathes into him, right? Most scholars think that Genesis 7, in this passage, when it talks about everything with the spirit of life in its nostrils died, that it is a direct reference to Genesis 1 and 2. And the idea is what God created, He now uncreates, decreates. I don't even know if those are words, but they work. He undoes what He's already done. It's like he's typing something on the computer and he hits that undo button. You know what I'm talking about? And it all goes away. And he starts fresh, except for Noah and his family. In fact, somebody has called this God's reboot. You know what a reboot is on a computer, right? Anybody ever had a computer that just will not respond? Mouse won't move, everything's going, nothing will respond. What do you have to do to it? Turn it off, start it all over again. Except for Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark, God reboots. And in case we forget that it was always God's plan to keep going forward, look what it says right there in Genesis 8.1. God remembered Noah. Now, that doesn't mean he forgot them. Like, oh, they slipped my mind over there. It's just he did what he told Noah he would do. As well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him on the ark, God caused a wind to pass over the earth 
and the water began to subside. Now most of you know the story, right? He, the water starts to subside. They've been on the boat 40 days, 40 nights. The water starts to subside. They send out the birds and the birds come back. Nothing, nothing. has comes back with a branch in its beak, right? Sends out. Bird doesn't find anything. They come to rest on the top of Mount. Anybody know, what's the mountain they come to rest on? Ararat, right? Over in the Turkey area, somewhere around there. Comes to rest. They find their place there. And then God says, it's all right to come out, Noah. And I love what happens next. Noah comes out. He's been in that ark for a year with the same people for a year. With his family for a year. All right? Let that settle in for a moment. We love our families, right? A boat for a year. Animals all around. Stuffy. Raining for 40 days and for 40 nights. You think they're ready to get off that boat? You know how ready I'm in to get out of the car with my family after a two-hour trip? It's like, let me off this, out of this van. Noah comes out. And what's the first thing he does? He finds what he can do, builds an altar, and makes a sacrifice unto the Lord with some of the animals that were on the boat. That's what it says. Wouldn't you hate to have been that animal? I lived through the whole deal for this. But contrary to popular belief, the animals probably didn't talk to Noah. All right, when Dr. Doolittle on the boat. So he comes out. But I don't want you to miss this comes out and he sets up a place. He built an altar to the Lord. He took some of the every kind of clean animal, every kind of clean bird and offered it. He didn't just stop with a little bit. He took and said, I'm donating all of this. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. You notice he says man's not going to get any better. In fact, anybody know what Noah does in chapter 9? He drinks a little too much. Does stuff he's not supposed to do. Finds himself in a cave, right? Even though men's inclination is evil from his youth, I will never again strike every living thing as I've done. So why in the world is this here? I want you to, there's three reasons I think that this story is so important for us today. Three things that we need to remember. And this ain't going to be on the screen, so you just have to write them down and remember them. First of all, this story shows us that God absolutely hates sin. Right? There's no doubt about that. What causes all this destruction? We do. What about us? Our walking away from the Lord and the sin in our lives. He absolutely hates it. He destroyed everything but a family and some animals because of the sin of mankind. It is not something that's an inconvenience to Him. It is detestable in His sight. It is an abomination unto Him. It is incompatible with his nature he absolutely hates sin and there's some of you and some of us in this room that have sin in our lives that is absolutely terrible to god and we keep dismissing it as just a little mistake or just something that is not as bad as everybody else's and we fool ourselves into thinking that well i'm not quite as bad so i'm okay god hates sin. 
Look at the measures he went to in this passage of Scripture to show that he hates sin. And if it was the only time in the Old Testament, we think, well, that was kind of a one time. He does it again and again and again and again. His people walk away and tragedy is the only thing that brings them back where they realize, oh, God really doesn't like us doing that. He hates it. That's not a word I use lightly. But here's the good news out of this. God is always wanting to offer a new beginning. That's what Noah really is, right? It's a relaunch. It's Earth 2.0. It's the next version. God says, I'm relaunching this through Noah, and it's going to be different. Now, the reality is, he says, man's not going to be different, but it's going to set in motion something different. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the things it says about Noah is Noah, who built a boat, even though it was something he had not seen yet, then it says, and he condemned the world in doing that, but he also became an heir to future salvation. God wants to give everyone in this room an opportunity for a new beginning. I don't know who needs it here, but the truth is there are a lot of people that probably do. Maybe it's been a terrible year. Maybe you've lost people you care about. Maybe there's been things at work or things at home or things at school that have been terrible. You feel like life is crashing down upon you. You feel like you just need something new. The Lord is always available for new beginnings. Fact and lamentations, right in the midst of the destruction of the city, it's Jeremiah that says, His mercies are new every morning. But here's the catch for us God will always do His part for new beginnings. He did everything for Noah He said He would do. But the catch for us is this that new beginnings start with complete obedience. It's intentional that it tells us over and over again, Noah did everything God commanded. Everything. Not some of, not part of, not a little bit, not most, not 99%. He did everything. And there's some of you in this room that know what the Lord has called you to do and you've done some or part or none. But you hadn't done everything. This morning, what God is saying to you is, you need new beginnings, but it comes through complete obedience. Noah and the ark is a truly amazing story. It's amazing in that the impossible is made possible. It's amazing in trying to figure out how it all happened. In fact, one of the dangers of preaching about Noah is you always get about five questions after the sermon about this animal and that animal and what happened with this and that. But the point of the story is not for us to get caught in the logistics of how a giraffe ended up in the boat. The point of the story is to realize the seriousness with which God takes sin and the opportunity for a new beginning that comes in being obedient to Him. There's some of you in this room that have been looking for a new beginning, but you've been looking in all the wrong places when it starts with obedience to Him.